Well, if you have your Bibles, could you please open to the book of Mark? We've been walking our way through the book of Mark, and hopefully you've really enjoyed this, a deeper look, a slower walk through the book of Mark. It's really been enjoyable. And the book of Mark is all about the person of Jesus. That's what Mark has been doing for us. He's been walking us through and continuing to unveil who Jesus is. It's as if Mark was drawing a picture, and you're watching this, and you're observing this picture being drawn, and it's a picture of Jesus. And you're kind of standing next to this artist as he draws this picture, and you see pieces of the picture come together, and you're kind of waiting for the whole picture to be put together. So in the last eight chapters, Mark has been continuing to draw this picture for us of who Jesus is, and you're kind of like, oh, okay. So he's, if it was a picture, right? He's tall, he's got dark hair, there's a sunset, whatever. He's unveiling for you this person of who Jesus is bit by bit piece by piece. And every chapter, we've continued to learn a little bit more about who this person is, what he's like, what he's about. And so as we continue through the book of Mark, we're going to continue to see this picture unfold. And hopefully today, I believe we'll see the full picture of Jesus. I think that's what chapter 9 is. Chapter 9 is the unveiling of the final product. Here it is. It's done. Here's the picture of who Jesus is. Mark has been painting for us this beautiful picture of Jesus' majesty, divinity, power, and holiness. But instead of us being able to see the full picture in one paragraph, he's given us nine chapters. And we'll see and we'll hear more about that today. So let me walk you through, this won't take long, I promise, but I want to walk you through the last eight chapters of the book of Mark and point out a few of these particular interesting drawings or details about who Jesus is that we've seen so far, and hopefully we can kind of put them together and see the picture. You ready? Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark 1, 1 is, is Mark's main theme. It's his big idea. If you can understand Mark chapter 1, verse 1, you've understood the book of Mark. He just lays it out for us real clean and simple. This is what it's about. It says, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There it is. That's his premise for the entire book. I'm going to tell you the story of the gospel. The person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You could just take those five words, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and get the picture of the entire book of Mark. His name is Jesus his title is The Christ. I like that a little bit. I think that brings a little bit more clarity. Jesus the Christ. That's his title. That's his job. He's the long-awaited Messiah from the Old Testament. He's the Savior of the world. That's what Christ means. It's not his last name. Jesus the Christ. And then he's the Son of God. That's who he is. He's the Christ, and he's the Son of God. He's not like you. He's like you, but he's not you. He's different. He's the son of God sent from heaven to earth to redeem and to save his people. That's the book of Mark. Chapter one, verse one. And then from that point on through the rest of the book of Mark, he's going to unpack chapter one, verse one. Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. He wants you to understand every single one of those terms and ideas, who he is, so that you worship Jesus. That's the book of Mark. 
So let me walk you through just a few more of these drawings that are in the first eight chapters. Stay in the uh, chapter one, if you don't mind. Mark chapter one, verse seven. We're introduced to a character named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist makes this proclamation, which is another um, descriptive detail about who Jesus is. John says, after me, John's this prophet, big deal, uh, people come out and follow him, be his disciple, or baptized by him. And John says, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. It's a big deal. That's an um, unbelievable picture that uh, Mark is drawing for us, that John the Baptist, a hero of the faith, a, a prophet of the day, he says, don't look at me, somebody way mightier is coming. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. That's how insignificant I am compared to this Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. He's coming. He's magnificent. He's wonderful. Worship him. Still in chapter 1, go down to verse 11. This is at Jesus' baptism, and we hear the Father we hear the spoken word of God, God the Father, declare you, pointing of, speaking of Jesus, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Wow, what a bold statement. The voice of God speaks about Jesus, you are my beloved son. See, he's starting to get the picture. He said it all in chapter one, verse one, but now he's unpacking all those, what they mean. He's powerful, he's mighty, he's the son of God. He continues to tell us more about who this Jesus is. Still in chapter 1, verse 23, the people say, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Oh, okay. So a little bit more about this picture of who Jesus is. He's not like the scribes. He's different. He's, he's other than the scribes and the Pharisees. Like sometimes we put him in that category of religious leader, but the, the, the people observing him and watching him that day are like, no. He's different. He preaches with authority. He's, he's not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Then look at verse 24 of chapter 1. Here we have an unclean spirit, and the unclean spirit declares, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Very interesting. Coming from an unclean spirit, he declares that Jesus is the Holy One. So another piece of this picture. Jesus is holy coming from an unclean spirit. He's righteous, he's pure, he's perfect. And then still in chapter one, verse 27, the people again say about Jesus, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Another picture of who Jesus is. He has power over the unclean spirits. The demonic world, Jesus is in authority over them. That's powerful, amazing. Jesus is absolutely incredible. Okay, we're in chapter two. We made it, guys. Chapter two, verse seven. Here's another drawing, another piece of this picture. After Jesus tells a paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven, the scribes are irate, and they ask, wait a minute, who, who can forgive sins but God alone? Another picture. Now he's being equal, put in the category of equal with God, or at least he is saying that he is equal with God. So another picture. This Jesus claims that he is equal with God because he's able to forgive sins. 
And then later on in that chapter, Jesus tells us about himself, and he declares himself to be the son of man. Kind of an interesting title. But then he describes that as he is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord or ruler or reigner over the Sabbath. He's not just declaring himself to be a Lord, a king. He's the Lord over something. He's the Lord over the Sabbath. So he rules and reigns over the Old Testament law. Man alive. This, either this is true and unbelievable or he's, or he's crazy. For chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 11. More unclean spirits declare you are the son of God. That's who you are. Unclean spirits say, Jesus, we know you. We know who you are. You're the son of God. Hear all these common themes? It's just Mark chapter 1, verse 1 being declared, being unpacked for us so we understand fully who Jesus is. Uh, chapter 4, verse 41. After Jesus calms a storm, it says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus, we're trying to put together who you are, trying to figure out exactly who you are, and here's the piece of information we've come to you. The sea and the wind obey you. I don't know what that means right now, but even the sea, the wind, the waves, they, they listen to your voice. It's another piece of this picture. Chapter 5, verse 7. Another man with an unclean spirit, and the unclean spirit says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Another declaration of who he is from an unclean spirit. Jesus, son of the most high God. And then lastly, chapter 6, one more. Some people are telling King Herod, how is this guy Jesus? How is he able to perform all these miracles and wonders and deeds? How is he able to do this? And some of the people tell King Herod, well, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So they're either saying he either is John the Baptist, maybe that's who he is, or maybe he has John the Baptist's power because John the Baptist rose from the dead. We're not really sure, but maybe that's who he is. And all of that comes to a head in chapter 8. This is what you heard last week. Jesus takes his disciples, his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he pulls them aside and has a conversation. And he goes back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And he says, let's talk about this real quick. Who am I? He pulls his disciples aside and says, we need to talk. I think there's still some confusion. Jesus starts with the question, who do the people say that I am? Let's wrestle with that real quick. For the last eight chapters, we've told you the last three years of Jesus' life, we've told you who I am. I've described it to you. I've shown you my wonders and powers. Are people getting it? That's what Jesus says in chapter 8. Do people understand who I am? And Peter steps up and he says, no, no, they don't, they don't quite get it yet. Um, some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're a prophet. No, no, they don't get it yet. Um, but then Jesus asks them, who, but who, who do you say that I am? Okay, I get, the, I get that the people don't quite get it yet, but do you guys get it? Are you there? Do you believe? Do you fully understand who I am yet? And then in verse 29 of chapter 8, Peter says, you are the Christ. That's the right answer, right? 
Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Peter gets it. Took him a while. He was with Jesus. He spent time with Jesus. He saw. Finally, in chapter 8, the question is raised, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. That's the first eight chapters of Mark. Mark 1, verse 1. That's it. You are the Christ, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And Peter is starting to get it. And this is where the book has been headed. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you believe that he is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God? And now I ask you that question. Not who do people say that Jesus is, Jesus is because we'd get so many answers in this auditorium. If I asked you, tell me, who do people say that Jesus is? But let me look at you for a second and ask you, who do you say that Jesus is? There's only one right answer. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. That's it. That's who Jesus is. And that's what the Word of God, Mark in particular, is trying to teach us. That we know who Jesus is if we have faith in him. We'll be saved, and we'll worship Jesus like we're ought. So that brings us to chapter 9. And today, our message is the crescendo of this narrative. All the first eight chapters are building up this picture of who Jesus is, and then in chapter 9, we see Jesus. That's chapter 9. We get to see him in all his wonder and glory. Until this point, we have only seen glimpses of his glory, statements about his majesty, But today in chapter 9, we will see the full picture of who Jesus is. We will get a window into the kingdom and a glimpse of the king. We'll get a sneak peek at his true brilliance and splendor. So let me read for you Mark chapter 9, verse 1. It says this, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So they're going to see it. Until this point, they've heard about it. They've seen bits and pieces of it. But Jesus says, in just a little while, you will see the kingdom. You'll get a window into the kingdom and see, and see the king. And he says, truly I, want you to, I, I, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom. He's saying, soon... Very soon you will see my kingdom and see me as the king. But then he says, only some of you. I think this is really interesting. He says, only some of you will still be alive or around to see it. This is not the main point of my message, but I think it's interesting. As church people and Bible people, let me try to explain for you chapter 1. Or, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. It seems to be that there's three interpretations. I'll be quick, I promise. seems that there, there's three interpretations of chapter 9. Like, what's he talking about soon? And that some of you won't taste death. What's he, what's he talking about? When is the kingdom to come? So it's a kingdom question. When you think about your theology about the kingdom of God, you need to wrestle with chapter 9, verse 1. What does it mean that his kingdom's coming soon? Some of the guys that are currently alive will still be alive What does that mean? So there's three possible understandings of verse one. Number one is the transfiguration. It says, in just a little while, the kingdom will come, or you'll see the kingdom. Many believe that he's speaking of in six days. So in six days is the transfiguration. That's when you'll see the kingdom in his power. It kind of makes sense. Um, I'm not sure exactly if if they do see the kingdom. They do see bits and pieces of it. 
But that's, that's one. And then I'm also not sure about if many will die in those six days or will taste death in those six days. But that's one understanding. Another understanding is Christ's ascension. So Jesus is about to die. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to die on the cross. He's going to be buried for three days. He's going to rise again. He's going to spend some time with his disciples. And then he's going to ascend into heaven where Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he'll be seated at the right hand of the Father and we'll worship him forever. So it's possible that, that um, Jesus is saying, in just a little while, you will see the kingdom, which means Jesus is going to die, be buried, raise again, and then ascend, which would have been a little bit of time, not a long time, just maybe a few weeks. Uh, that's when that would have happened. So that's, that's potentially one understanding. And then the last understanding is his second return, the second return of Jesus, which is his ultimate rule and reign on earth on earth. So just think about that, chew on it. It really, I don't think it really matters which one you land on, because we can all agree that what Jesus is saying is he's telling them that he is the promised king, and in the very near future, you will see him as the king and see his kingdom in all of its power and wonder. He's just saying to them, you will see me in a little time. You will see me for who I really am. I think that's the important piece of, of verse 1. It's good for us to have hope, to know that one day we will see Jesus in all of his glory. We'll see him as he really is. All right, so let's move into uh, verses 2 through 8. This is the famous passage of Scripture called the Transfiguration. Very important piece of text, very important because we get to see who Jesus is. Jesus, in this text, will show the disciples his glory and they will respond oddly. This is how the story goes. Jesus shows the disciples his glory, and they respond oddly. They respond with tears, silly words. They're awkward. It's kind of an interesting, interesting story. Jesus shows them his wonder and splendor, and they get weird. That's kind of the story. It reminds me of a common theme today with weddings is the first look. Are you familiar with this? For those of you that have been married lately, maybe, um, the first look, is that a thing? I asked my wife. I couldn't remember. I asked, did we do a first look? She's like, no, we didn't do that. That's kind of cool, but uh, it's kind of new. And that's a thing, right? A first look where the bride gets all dressed up and, and, and gets all dolled up for the wedding. And before the wedding, the husband gets a sneak peek, a little window into his bride. I have a quick clip I want to show you. Are you nervous? Yeah. Okay, you can turn around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you. That's so funny. Thank you. Your hair is so pretty. It's huge. It's huge. Oh, you look so handsome. Like beautiful. Thank you. In our story, Peter's the groom. He gets a window into the wonder and splendor of who Jesus is, and he just is a mess. Wow, oh, Jesus, you're beautiful. You're, you're wonderful. And then he says some really weird things. That's, that's our text in verses 2 through 8. 
Peter is so in shock or in awe, or as the text says, in fear, that he just starts rambling. I love Peter. So many times I feel just like Peter. Let's read verses uh, 2 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as, one on, uh, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified." And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. This passage is called the Transfiguration, which just means that the disciples got to see Jesus transform right in front of them, into the king that Jesus really is. What a moment. Jesus, for one moment, says, here's who I am. Look at my splendor and my wonder. Don't you dare minimize me. Remember, I'm the king of the world, the savior of the world, the son of God. That's who I really am. When you think of the transfiguration, you should think of the movie Transformers. In the, in the movie, The Transformers, you see this beat-up, ugly, yellow Volkswagen Beetle, right? It's a piece of junk. It's old. It's rusted. But then in a blink of an eye, you see that it isn't just an old, beat-up, yellow Volkswagen. It's actually a huge, awesome alien robot. And it's got rockets and lasers, and it's awesome. This is our story here. Jesus came, it'll make sense, I hope. Jesus came to earth. He came to earth as a baby born in a manger, lived as a humble carpenter, became an itinerant preacher, just traveling around telling people about his kingdom, and he just stayed with whoever would let him in. There was nothing magical or beautiful about how Jesus looked. Jesus wasn't much to look at, and you wouldn't have thought him a king. But then Isaiah tells us, in Isaiah chapter 53, for he grew up before him like a young plant, and he was like a root, or out of dry ground. That's all Jesus was. He's, he's a root. And he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as, for one, as, as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. That was Jesus. He was humble. He was a carpenter. Walked, walked around the earth telling people about his kingdom and about God and how, how we need righteousness. And there was nothing about him that, ske- that screamed king. So he had to show his disciples what he was really like remind them of his wonder and majesty and splendor. And here Jesus shows his three closest friends a window into the kingdom and reveals he is the true king of the world 
And it's awesome because the moment they see him for who he really is, it radically changes them. It's a moment they will never, ever forget. That's the transfiguration. So what I want us to do is I want us to look at the transfiguration today and see what we are meant to learn about Jesus and to see what we're also supposed to learn about ourselves from this magnificent moment in Scripture. To see what, what it reveals about Jesus, if we get to see Jesus in his brilliance and wonder, what does that teach us about Jesus? And then I think Peter and the other two disciples can teach us a, for a few things about ourselves as well. First, the transfiguration teaches us about who Jesus is, what Jesus is really like. We can't miss these things. It's stated in chapter 1, verse 1, but it's articulated beautifully in the transfiguration. Who is Jesus? What is Jesus really like? Jesus is holy, and he's unlike any other person who's ever lived. That's who Jesus is. He's perfectly holy. That's described in the white clothes that Jesus was wearing. The white clothes show us his incomparable holiness. This was not a religious garb given to him by some other priest, right? The priest would wear, would wear religious garb given to them from a previous priest. It would have been wonder and majestic. This is not that. This is different. The clothes that Jesus is wearing are otherworldly. They weren't made by hands, made by men. They're different. They're wonderful. They were perfect. What he is wearing reminds us and shows us his spotlessness, his holiness, it teaches us that he's unlike any other person who has ever lived. Only Jesus wears those, gar those clothes. Only Jesus deserves perfect, spotless, perfectly white. Jesus is holy and unlike any other person who's ever lived. The second thing the transfiguration teaches us is that Jesus is God. And he's unlike any other prophet who has ever lived. That's what the transfiguration teaches us. In verse nine, we see that Moses and Elijah show up and Jesus is talking with a Moses and Elijah and Peter's like, oh, I, I get it. Like you're, with, you're one of those guys. Oh, Jesus, I get it. You're, you're similar to Moses and Elijah. You're, you're one of the prophets. He tries to put them in the same category. But then if you read verse eight, which we just read, verse eight shows us that Jesus is not the same as Moses and Elijah. For they, no long, for they no longer were anyone with him, but Jesus only. I think the window into the kingdom is that Elijah and Moses will be in the kingdom, but they're not the king. That's the point of seeing Moses. It, it's a window into eternity, into eternal life, that we'll be able to be with fellow saints like Moses and Elijah. But when the cloud comes down and everything's gone, only Jesus remains. No, no, no. Jesus is not like Moses and Elijah. He's way better. Jesus is the king. Moses and Elijah were mere servants. And the third thing that the transfiguration teaches us is that Jesus is the beloved son of the most high God. We see that in verse seven. In verse seven, you have this amazing story about a cloud. A cloud overshadows them. And what does the cloud represent? The presence of God. That's an Old Testament theme, Mount Sinai, right? The cloud comes down and engulfs them and shows them and makes them terrified of the presence of God. That's the same cloud they would have known from Mount Sinai. And then it says a voice came out of the cloud. And whose voice is that? The Father's. 
the one, the maker of heaven and earth, the sustainer of all things. It's the Father's voice. The same voice that spoke at Jesus' baptism. It's my beloved son. I love him. With him, I'm well pleased. It's the same voice. And the last thing that we see is he says, God the Father says, this is my son. Listen to him. What does the transfiguration teach us about Jesus? That Jesus is the beloved son of God. The beloved son of the most high God. Don't forget that. He's the son of God and the savior of the world. Man, Jesus is awesome, isn't he? What an amazing experience for these three that we need to understand and and let get into our heart that we dare not minimize Jesus or claim that he's something else. Remember his conversation with Peter? Who do the people say that he is? Well, he's Elijah. He's John the Baptist. He's a prophet. The transfiguration puts that to death. Jesus is not Elijah. He's not John the Baptist. He's the beloved son of the Most High God. What an amazing experience. But I think, let's just for a moment look back into these verses, and now let's look at Peter. Peter's an amazing figure, a great man of God, wrote books in the New Testament. I'm not trying to demean Peter at all. Not poking fun at Peter, making fun of him at all, but Peter's a lot like you and I. And I think there's some things we can learn from Peter. See, Peter's response to the transfiguration teaches us about us. It teaches us how many times we respond to God and who Jesus really is. It shows us a little bit of problem areas that that many of us slip into when we think about God. Here's what Peter teaches us. Peter teaches us that it's very easy to minimize Jesus. So easy. And we do it so many times without even thinking about it. We, we put Jesus in this lower category than the beloved son of God without even knowing it or, or thinking about it. And we slow, uh, slowly lower Jesus' magnificence and splendor. Peter teaches us it's very easy to minimize Jesus. It's amazing that as Jesus is transfigured before them, that Peter still has a few things he needs to say, right? What do we know about Peter? He loves to talk. He's always talking in our scriptures. See, me and you are a lot like Peter, and we can learn from his responses because we minimize Jesus too. All the time, we minimize Jesus. Because many times we think, just like Peter did, we think that Jesus is just one of our many heroes. Do you accidentally put Jesus in that category sometimes? I love Moses, I love Elijah, I love Jesus. That's what what Peter did. He slipped Jesus down the category of heroes. We do this all the time. You and I, we have our favorite preachers. We have our favorite theologians. I really enjoy the reformers. And it's very easy for me to allow Jesus to slip down into the category of one of my heroes. I got my man Martin Luther. I got my man John Calvin. I got my man Jesus Christ. No, that's minimizing Jesus, putting him on the same level as one of my favorite preachers or theologians. You do this all the time too. My favorite author. The book that changed me is mere Christianity. No, it didn't. The only book that has the power to change you is the word of God. Don't you dare put Jesus on the same category as John Piper. That's That's us minimizing who Jesus is. Another thing Peter teaches us is that many times we think Jesus is best when he's here on earth with us. See that in Peter? In his kind of wording, Peter says in verse five, man, it's good that that we're all here. 
Like, isn't this powerful? We got like the A team. Like, this is incredible. We got Peter, we got Moses, we got Elijah, we got Jesus. Like, boom, that is the perfect church staff right there. And Peter's all pumped. Like, this is awesome. I got the dream team together. We're going to change the world. Isn't that good? Let's, let's make some tents. I got this great idea. You know what we need to do is let's put up, let's put up a tent, like a church, and, and we'll, we'll establish this thing, and we'll invite everybody, and they'll come, and it'll be amazing. She's like, Peter, shut up. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm about. That's not what I came to do. Peter, your moment in time isn't the culmination of all history. Peter, you're not the, the king. You're not the rock star. It's not about you. We do this so many times. Like, man, if I could just get Jesus to show up, like, if I could just get Jesus to enter into my moment in history, boom, I'll change the world, right? Like, I got this good thing going. Jesus kind of is a rock star. If I could get Jesus to join what I'm doing, we could change the world. Can you imagine the churches we'd plant? Can you imagine the youth ministry we'd have? Man, if I could just get Jesus to show up into my mission, man, what a, what a way we minimize Jesus when we try to get Jesus to enter into our story. Peter wants to hang out and stay put. When the mission of Jesus was to die, was to go to Jerusalem, to carry his cross, and die for your sins. He's not staying there. He's not living in a tent. He's on his mission, and Peter is supposed to join Jesus' mission. And Peter will one day die for Jesus' mission. He's not establishing a tent. That's not what this is about. Another way we minimize Jesus is we don't fear Jesus like we ought to. In verse 6, we see Peter in all of his wonder, and he's like, I got this idea about the tents. And then he's like, darn it, I shouldn't have said that. I didn't know what to say, so I just talked, right? <laughs> Peter kind of puts his foot in his mouth again. And he doesn't, what Peter reveals to us is that there's moments in Peter's life where he fears Jesus, but he doesn't fear Jesus, period. Like, if you look back at the first eight chapters of Mark, there's moments Peter fears Jesus when Jesus is walking on the water, when Jesus is casting out demons. It says that and they were in fear, great fear. And then at the transfiguration, Peter's in great fear. There's moments he's in great fear, but not overall. We need to have a reverent fear for Jesus all the time, not when he just shows up with his power. Instead, the disciples should have always been in awe and fear of Jesus, because that is who he is. You see, if we don't fear Jesus, we probably don't know Jesus like we think we do. But verse 8 shows us the clearest picture of all, the perfect picture of how we should view Christ. Verse 8, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. The sufficiency of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus is our king. No comparisons. No other details are needed in order to make Jesus look better. Just Jesus in all his wonder and majesty, but Jesus only. See, Jesus deserves our soul worship. No one else. We don't give our worship to anyone else. I see, I think that's the point we should learn from the transfiguration. That if we minimize Jesus... We take away his wonder and majesty. So I have a few things I think we need to wrestle with just as we wrap up today. What happens when we minimize Jesus? That you can take these home and think about these and wrestle with these and repent of these. I don't want to minimize Jesus. You see, if we minimize Jesus, we will idolize sinners 
who can't be our substitute. I do this all the time. We talked about it. When you minimize Jesus, you'll idolize sinners. There's only one savior of the world. There's only one king. His name's Jesus Christ. We worship and serve him alone. Number two, if we minimize Jesus, we will idolize ourselves and our current spot in history. Jesus isn't about our mission. We're about his. He's the savior of the world. He's the only hope for, for sinners. He's the only one. His name is the only name that we, we cry out, that we exalt. See, if we idolize our ministries, if we idolize our businesses or our time in history, we won't be about Jesus' ministry, about his mission. Another thing, if we minimize Jesus, we won't fear Jesus of the coming judgment. Peter was right to fear Jesus in that moment, but we should fear Jesus all the time because if we don't fear Jesus, we won't fear his return. Because we have to remember that Jesus will return as a warrior to defeat sin, death, and Satan. We should have a reverent fear for Jesus. And when we fear Jesus, we'll hate our sin, we'll repent regularly. If we fear Jesus, we won't question him, we'll obey him. And we most likely won't waste our lives doing things that don't matter. I think so many times our hobbies have such a high place in our life because we don't fear Jesus and we're not afraid to waste the time he's given us. And then lastly, if we minimize Jesus, we'll minimize the cross and his resurrection. If you minimize Jesus, then the cross was just a nice moment in history instead of our only hope. I want to read for you the last couple verses and just summarize for it. Because the last few verses, 9 through 13, is a reminder of that point. That if we minimize Jesus, we minimize the cross and resurrection. It says this, And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does not come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written to them. The disciples are confused about the resurrection from the dead. They're like, hold on a second. Like, we just saw you in all your wonder, splendor, and majesty. You're, you're telling us you're going to die, and then you're going to have to rise from the grave? Like, we don't, we don't get that. We don't understand. And Jesus takes a moment to remind them of his mission, the gospel. Jesus reminds them, don't forget why I came. I am the king of the world. No one has to give me that title. No one has to give me that crown before I am. I am the king of the world. At any moment, I could establish my kingdom and demand everyone worship me, but I came to die for sinners. That's the gospel. That Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. So he puts them in, the, in their place and says, relax. I got this. I know why I came. I haven't come to establish my earthly reign yet. I came to die at the hands of my enemies and then to rise again. He's saying, guys, just wait. We're not there yet. I will establish my kingdom, but not yet. I know you want me to rule and reign forever starting right now, but I have to suffer and die so that my mission will be complete. 
Disciples, just wait. My plan is unfolding just like I said it would. Please trust me. That's our text today. We see Jesus declare his kingdom. We see a window into his kingdom. And we're reminded of the mission of why he came. Our text today is absolutely beautiful. Because in our text today, we saw ourselves. We saw ourselves in Peter. See, you and I are just like Peter. We talk too much. We understand too little. And we're way overconfident. We're Peter. But in our text today, we also see the beauty and majesty of of Jesus. Today, we saw that Jesus is more holy and powerful and wonderful than we could ever imagine. That's who Jesus is. And then lastly, we were reminded of the gospel, that Jesus' mission was to come as a humble servant. He didn't wear his royal robes. He didn't wear his crown. He came as a carpenter. He lived a perfect life. He died and would be resurrected from the grave. The reason he came was not yet to establish his kingdom, but to pay the penalty for sinners like you and I. Without the cross, we don't get the kingdom. He will establish his kingdom, but only those he dies for will be in his kingdom with him. And it's all of these things that cause us to worship Christ like he deserves. Here's our take-home truth today. If I could boil it down into one thing I want you to take away, it's this. See him for his beauty and majesty and quit minimizing him and quit worshiping anything else that is incomparable to him, which is nothing. So then I hope you're asking this question. How do we see Jesus? How do I see Jesus? Like, I want to see Jesus. I want that transfiguration moment. Like, I think if I was on that mountain, I would have been transformed forever too. I would become a Peter if I could have that moment. Like, if I could see Jesus, like right now, he's veiled. He's, he's separated from us. Like, man, if I could see Jesus, then I'd live for Jesus too, and I'd die for Jesus too. Like, I just need that moment. Well, Peter wrote a book of the Bible. Two books, First and Second Peter. And in Second Peter, he helps us understand why we don't need to see the mountain. He tells us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19, why we don't need to be on the mountain of transfiguration. Why we can see Jesus every single day. So congregation, this is how you can see Jesus. Let's listen to the same guy that was on the mountain who says you don't need to be on the mountain, that you can see Jesus. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. There's the story. Like, yeah, I get it. I was there. I saw it. You're right. I saw Jesus in all his splendor. You're absolutely right. Verse 19. But... And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed 
to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That, those verses might be a little bit confusing, but here's what Peter is saying. I was on the mountain, but we have something better than the mountain of transfiguration. We have the word of God. And the word of God, the Bible, is God's words handed to us by men, carried along by the Holy Spirit. And every single time you open up the word, you're seeing Jesus. You want something better than the Mount of Transfiguration? Open up your Bibles. You want to see Jesus for all he is, his wonder, his majesty, his brilliance, his splendor? Open the Bible. Every single time you open the Bible, you see Jesus. The Holy Spirit empowers the word of God to transform lives. That's exactly what the Mount of Transfiguration did. It allowed them to see Jesus for who he truly is and taught them to worship. Every single time you open your Bible, that happens. The Holy Spirit empowers the word of God to transform your lives, to teach you the brilliance of Jesus and to worship Jesus alone. He says you'll do well to pay attention. Peter says the word of God is a lamp shining in a dark place. He says, read it. Listen to it until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Meditate on the word of God day and night. That's how you see Jesus. You want to see Jesus today? Open his word and let the wonder of his righteousness, his majesty, and the story of the gospel overwhelm you just like the cloud did at the transfiguration. We don't need that moment. That moment's beautiful. It's powerful. It's a great moment in history. But you want that moment? Open your Bibles every day. You want to see Jesus? You want to repent of your idols? You want to worship Jesus like he deserves? You want to stop minimizing Jesus? Open your Bibles. That's from Peter, from the Holy Spirit, to Peter, to us. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.